Gimlet. I'm Alex Bloomberg, and this is Without Fail, the show where I talk with artists, athletes, entrepreneurs, visionaries of all kinds about their successes and their failures and what they've learned from both. Now, when my guests normally join me for interviews at the Gimlet Studios here in Brooklyn, they usually don't have to worry that much about their outfits. This is a podcast after all. But my guest today showed up in an outfit that was, frankly, a tragedy to have wasted on a podcast. A floral patterned silk shirt, checkered pants, a belt buckle in the shape of a dragon's head, and to top it off, a pair of oversized snakeskin sunglasses. Because I was coming to Brooklyn, I wanted to be fancy. <laughs> you yes. are fancy. That's yeah, a, that I mean, is a, absolutely. Is that a Dapper Dan original that you're wearing right now? Yes, it is. It's amazing. Tools of the trade. Tools of the trade. My guest today on the show goes by the name Dapper Dan. And that boldly patterned shirt he's wearing, he designed it in partnership with the high-end fashion label Gucci. And the fact that he is now at age 75 working with a luxury fashion house like Gucci is something that probably no one would have predicted three decades ago when Dan was in the early stages of his fashion career. Back then, he worked on the fringes of the fashion world. In fact, for a while, he was the go-to stylist for many of New York City's most notorious gangsters. But his early career came to a halt when the world of high fashion, the world he now calls home, came after him and put him out of business. I talked to Dan about his transformation from a fashion outlaw to a Gucci insider, from street hustler to someone regularly name-checked in rap songs by Jay-Z, Fat Joe, Missy Elliott, and many others. And one of the many things that struck me during the conversation was how Dan's story serves almost as an allegory for the fate of the neighborhood he's called home his entire life, Harlem, a neighborhood that was seen as the hub of Black culture in New York City, then fell on hard times, weathered the crack epidemic, and is now going through another transformation, a messy blend of economic development and gentrification. Dan's story also charts that epic course. And just a quick warning before we get started, there is some swearing in this episode. Dan was born in Harlem in 1944, grew up poor, one of seven children. His father only had a third grade education, couldn't really read, and worked three jobs to make ends meet. Let me tell you something. One of the turning points in my life was when my father was going to buy me a suit from Ripley's department store. And we went into the store. What was, it, what was the suit for? The suit was for Easter. Oh, okay. It's going to be an Easter suit. Uh-huh. It was charcoal brown with gray pinstripes. i never forget that suit, right? So we go to the Ripley's. He's going to buy it on credit, right? So I look at the contract that my father had. And I said, Daddy, they're going to charge you two and a half times what this suit costs. I had just learned how I was in eighth grade, going to the eighth grade, learned the uh, uh, mathematical calculations for interest. And I told my father, it's going to cost you two and a half times, right? And my father said, boy, don't you know you can read? And tears welled up in his eyes. And the expression on his face, I could see it every day like it happened yesterday. He said, boy, you could read. Do you know what that means? You know how powerful it is? You know, uh-huh. he understood the power of information. And that's what it was. It was information. I realized how important reading was. Anything that I wanted to be that could free me up from the situation that I'm in was through the power of reading. And so I read my way through everything, in everything, and out of everything. Dan's love of reading served him well in school. But it also served him well in another place, outside, on the streets. See, as a teenager, Dan became enthralled with the neighborhood dice games. 
Back then, Dan says, every two or three blocks in Harlem, you could find groups of men betting on dice games and the hustlers trying to take their money. Dan started skipping high school to try to win money at these games. He learned everything about the dice game that he could, how marks were called Vicks, short for victim, how seven was the likeliest roll followed by six and eight, and how you always needed to keep the odds in your favor. And at a certain point, he felt he learned all he could from the streets. What I did was I exhausted all the street education I could get. Uh-huh. And then I looked for books that possibly would tell me about it. Right. And the books was, the master books was Hustles and Con Men. Mm-hmm. And then for my profession, which is um, gambling, mm-hmm. the world authority on it, on the level that I was gambling, was John Scani. John Scani was the uh, advisor to the United States government on professional gambling and casinos and everything. Mm. And he wrote the books that would be considered the Bible. What books were those? Uh, John Scani on gambling, uh-huh. John Scani on dice, John Scani on cards. Is it, this, this, the book, was that something that you, that was known? Like, no, nope, none of the older guys who taught me things uh-huh. ever mentioned that book to me. You know, and sometimes you just, you, you come across information so amazingly. So, what's your life like at that point? Oh, I'm like, poor as hell. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> that was the purpose of learning the game. <laughs> you know, no, to but, escape poverty. Yeah, but so once you had learned it, though, like, yeah. did that, did oh, you actually... Oh, once just, I learned it, I became like, oh, Master Saul. If you rise to a certain level, you become what is known in the street as a Saul. A, a Saul is a name that derives from the from the scriptures, the Bible, uh-huh. as the wisdom of Solomon. So the players looked up to the Sauls. The Saul is the king player. Uh-huh. So I got known in Harlem because of my skills as a player who became a king Saul and mastered the game. So what? give me an example of like, I'm just a regular person in the neighborhood and I, I, I walk by a crap game and I'm not like a, I'm not a professional. I'm not. I'm just like a normal. Civilian. You're a Vic. I'm a Vic. <laughs> I'm, I would definitely have been a Vic. <laughs> yeah, yeah you're that was, a Vic. That's the role I was meant to play. Yeah. So I'm a Vic. <laughs> yeah. I just got paid. Whatever. I've got. I'm ready. I'm ready to have some fun. I go. How? What? What, what would I do to yeah. entice you? Yeah. What do you do? First of all, all con games, right? Mm-hmm. Is based on some kind of greed within you. Right. So you use that against. The Vicks. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. When you hear gambling, that's a misnomer mm-hmm. in people's head. Because they think that, the first thing they think is luck. Mm-hmm. But Sauls know that gambling is based on the law of probability. I never would place a bet when the dice first come out. Uh-huh. I always wait till the dice catch a number. Right. And then when he catch the number, I bet him he can't make that number, right? So people, so you'd wait for somebody to get their roll, they bet, and then they get the roll that they bet on, and so then they collect some money. And then you would go up to them and say, I bet you can't do that again? I bet you can't make that before you throw seven. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? So, okay, so at this point, when you're a Saul, when you'd, you'd achieved Saul status, yes. how much were you making? Like, um... I used to have $10,000 in my sock. That was, the, that was the extra money I have. You know, and then I have money in my, in my pocket just to, to entice them to play. So you're walking around, you have $10,000 on your person. How did it feel to have, have money? Let me tell you something. I'm the first generation of the great migration that came from the South. Uh-huh. And this is what makes me who I am today. 
When you look at the slave trade, how we were captured in Africa, and then we had to survive the Middle Passage, then you think about the 350 years of slavery, 375, 400 years of slavery that they had to endure. Then you think about the fact Jim Crow, Reconstruction, and, and, and I look at my parents' life, and I think about what they must have gone through. Mm-hmm. My father's father was born a slave, and my father was born in 1898. That's mm-hmm. 33 years after the Emancipation Proclamation. And my, my father left home at 12 years old, mm-hmm. and he came north to make it on his own. And, you know, I mean, I always had hand-me-down clothes, holes in my shoes, and we had to be innovative. And to be innovative, we used to put paper in our, sh- in our shoes to cover the holes. And so then we had to be more innovative because the paper would wear out too quick. And we saw put linoleum. Mm-hmm. So that's who I am. So <sighs> I didn't feel to have money. Secure, comfortable. But um, I think the, the biggest thing about having money is the transformative things that the money does. Not just having it. What it does, it gets you clothes, it gets you cars, it gets you shiny things, you know? So it's the shiny things in life. Uh, If you're born with a certain social structure, the shiny things mean a lot. Uh Because with the shiny things, you can equate yourself with people who are so-called better than you are. So the, the, the Saul period of your life, how long did that last? It never, it never ends. <laughs> but when, I'm solving right now. <laughs> you think I'm here by choice? You think I woke up and said I want to hang out with you? I'm solving right now. It never ends, man. And what, what does that make me? Am I a Vic or am I like a, am I an accomplice in this con? <laughs> no, you, 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 you part of the tools of the trade right now. Good. Now right, I got to fashion as, you and use you like uh, like Saul's loot. <laughs> you know, Vic. I mean, we all we all Saul's to some degree. Now we look at your credentials and see how far you got. And say, yo, man, homeboy, solving in the radio game. <laughs> Dan kept Solon in the dice game through the 60s and 70s. He'd cycle through different corners all through Harlem, using probability, sleight of hand, and loaded dice to his advantage. And part of the reason Dan was winning so much money, carrying $10,000 around in a sock, was that around this time, the heroin trade was booming in Harlem. Money was pouring into the criminal underworld. So Dan wasn't just playing dice against easy marks anymore. He was also playing drug dealers who had extra cash to gamble. As Dan's winnings grew, he was able to start buying the flashy clothes that seemed so out of reach on that shopping trip with his father. Pretty soon, his outfits earned him the nickname Dapper Dan. But Dan was also starting to see the darker side of his line of work. His favorite dice partner got addicted to drugs. And Dan realized that some of the drug dealers he was hustling were betting with money they owed other people. If they lost that money to Dan, they could get killed. I justified it because even I was on a spiritual path, and I'm saying, "Well, I'm gambling because I know I'm breaking dope dealers, I'm and they hurting the community." So I'm but taking the, I'm taking money from bad people. In other words, I'm yeah, not taking money yeah, from like yeah, ups, upstanding yeah, people. Yeah, it's kind of like the Robin Hood thing, right? But um, that's what you're telling yourself. I, I'm, that's what I'm lying to myself about. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm seeing how this is transpiring in my life, right? See, and I'm and I'm seeing who I'm surrounded by. I'm not happy with them. I don't like the conversations they have. I don't like the life they lead. I'm just there to break them. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm placing myself in a daily hell. You know, for the sake of this money. Mm-hmm. So, I don't really want to do that no more. So I'm 
weeding myself off that. Mm -hmm. So I said, you know what? I'd rather do something that makes people feel good and ain't gonna hurt nobody. I'd rather sell clothes. And how, why clothes? Why clothes? Because clothes, nothing is more transformative than that. Kind of like Genesis, you know? Mm -hmm. Adam messed up, got caught. First thing he did, he went and got a loincloth. <laughs> Transformation. Transformation. <laughs> I'm a new man, God. <laughs> yes. I have covered thy sin. <laughs> uh -huh. so, so there's a picture I want to show you. Um, it's a picture of three people in front of, a, in front of a store window. The store window says, coming soon, Dapper Dan's. Yes. Ladies and Gentlemen's Boutique. Yes. Uh, and do you remember that picture when that picture was taken? Uh, yeah, yes, exactly. It was hot. We was working around. I was uh -huh. just setting everything up to show my store. So I took my suit jacket off and my tie off. So this at this point, how old are you? Where are you? How old are you in that picture? Uh, let me see. I got to do the math now. Let's see. I opened a store up in 1982. So... I'm like 40, around 39, 40. 39, 40. And the, what's, your, what's your state of mind in this picture? You have a, um, it seems like you have a pretty big smile on your face. Yeah. What are you feeling? I'm feeling like, yo, I'm making it happen. I'm making it happen, man. Uh -huh. You know, that picture is the beginning of a new episode in my life. Dan opened up the shop, hired an in-house tailor to create high-end custom leather jackets. But it wasn't quite the new episode he was hoping for. His reputation as a street hustler was still well-known around the neighborhood. And the drug dealers who knew Dan from all those dice games, they quickly became his loyal customers. So many of the middle-class professionals in Harlem steered clear of the store. And Dan was left to cater to his primary customer base. He kept the store open 24 hours a day for hustlers who wanted to drop by after a big night out or didn't want to be seen during the daylight hours. And business was pretty good. But it really took off one day when one of Dan's customers gave him an idea. The major drug dealer in Harlem at the time, mm -hmm. Jack Jackson. He was one of my uh -huh. prime customers to come to my store. Uh -huh. So one day he comes in the store and he has a little pouch. Uh -huh. You know, like... Like a fanny pack or like a Like money? a fanny pack. Uh-huh. Just slightly beginning. And nothing but $100 bills in it. Everybody's looking at him, admiring the bag. And everybody got excited because it was a Louis Vuitton bag and people was, really wasn't exposed to that at the time. And, uh -huh. and all. They're excited about the hundreds, but they're also excited about the bag that they're in. Because they know Jack. If he got something, it must be expensive. That's, a, that's so, the shiniest of the shiny objects. It's the shiny things. Uh -huh. Yeah, so... And I looked at that bag. I said, they, they excited about that bag. And I said, wow, that bag ain't nothing but $5 worth of vinyl. I said, what is it about that bag? And I'm also reading all kinds of spiritual books, right? You cannot study religion without studying symbolism if you uh -huh. want to go to the roots of religion. Right. So I said, you know what? It's the symbols. Mm -hmm. It's the symbols. Mm -hmm. I say. Imagine if I can have them walking around looking like that bag. Mm. Them meaning your customers. Yes. Uh -huh. And that's when the brainstorm took place. If they're happy with a little bit of logos, mm -hmm. a little bit of symbols, I give them all the symbols in the world. If one is good, mm -hmm. 
a lot is better than good. And, and that's the idea. So I say, I'm going to find out how to replicate them symbols in my own way and turn them into garments, which none of them luxury houses was doing, mm-hmm. you know? So what I end up doing is teaching myself how to print on leather, start teaching myself textile printing, start going to trade shows that specialize in textile printing, reading books on textile printing, everything I could find. I go to factories that did textile printing. If they didn't let me in, like, I wait till they close and I go through their garbage. Really? Actually. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. It was all footwork, mm-hmm. library work. And so eventually I taught myself that. Uh-huh. And you would just buy big bolts of leather? What, what, what are the yes, leather no, coming? Be, you, you buy skins of leather. I you bought buy, yeah. Japanese planche leather. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, um, and what are you printing on it? I'm printing Louis Vuitton. I'm printing Gucci. I'm printing Fendi. Uh-huh. I'm printing Polo. You know, uh, anything. All the, major, all the major brands. Now... Technically, that's a crime, right? Did it feel like a? Did it? What did it? Did it feel like? You, you missed your history lesson. Uh-huh. Bringing me here was a crime, <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So no, it did because, not feel like a crime. No, it did not feel like a crime. Besides, I was using my own creativity, and I was just implementing within my creativity their um, trademarks. Uh huh. You know. Describe what they look like, this, this first couple of designs. Okay, you, you see a leopard mm-hmm. and you see the spots. Mm-hmm. That's what it looked like. Just imagine an outfit as looking like a leopard and it got spots all of it. And imagine if you never saw a leopard before with spots. That's what it was like. The store racks at Dapper Dan's filled up with unique luxury creations you would never find on Madison Avenue. Like reversible coats with mink on one side and leather covered in Louis Vuitton logos on the other. And with major drug dealers like Jack Jackson wearing his designs, Dan's business took off. He had to hire more tailors to keep up with demand. And then a few years after Dan opened his store, crack cocaine hit New York City. Unlike powder cocaine, crack was cheap enough for just about anyone to afford. And sales of the drug skyrocketed. Which meant that drug kingpins were even more flush than before and looking for some place to spend their growing fortunes. Dapper Dan's became even more popular. I'm only catering to gangsters, right? So one guy come, they're getting ready to go to a major event. Uh-huh. So he buying jackets and stuff for his crew. He spent 16000 The next crew from his area comes and say, what did he spend? I say, he spent 16000 He say, I'm going to spend eighteen to twenty. Next crew came. This is an actual story. Uh-huh. The next crew came and asked me what they spent. And he spent $23,000. Uh-huh. You know? And they're and they're just walking out with they, like yeah, jackets. Yeah, this is like, like a competitive yeah. business. Uh-huh. Day, yeah, who can get the flyers? Who can get the most logos on their things? You know, uh-huh. it, it it didn't it didn't stop with the clothes. It extended to their furniture and their cars and uh-huh. whatever they could think of. They would say, "Well, he got a cover for his Jeep, uh, Louis Vuitton, Gucci, uh, MCM cover for his Jeep." He said, "I want you to do my whole Jeep." How, what What do you mean? Do the upholstery inside the Jeep? Yes. And the roof of the Jeep and the inside of the Jeep, the whole Jeep. And I would park my Jeep in front of the store. I had a red Jeep with red and white MCM interior and red and white MCM roof, you know. And when you took that roof off, it had a little sun cap, and that was red and white MCM. And I parked that in front of the store. I had a Mercedes Benz, right? And I had that all Gucci'd out, and I parked that in front of the store. Uh-huh. <laughs> 
That's amazing. That's amazing. That was like advertising. Yeah. Dan's tailors were on call around the clock as dealers tried to one-up each other with new custom designs. But as crack brought more money to the store, it also raised the stakes of the drug trade around Harlem. Gangs were getting more violent. The homicide rate in New York City was on the rise. For Dan, this meant that the needs of his customer base were changing. And so he adjusted his product line accordingly. I heard there's there's something, you had a garment called the snorkel? Yes, the snorkel. Tell me about the snorkel. The snorkel was an amazing coat because um, it was the ideal winter coat. You know, it was a puffy coat. It made you feel warm, you know, and um, had like the hood had raccoon, really fluffy raccoon collar, and it had the logos, Louis Vuitton logos all over it, soft, uh-huh. plonge leather, and the same colors as the original Louis Vuittons with the chocolate and the rust and, uh-huh. and the green lettering. You know, army green lettering. And so it was an amazing piece of work. And not only that, for the hustlers, for extra money, I would line it inside the lining with bulletproof material. Wow. Yeah. So, and material that uh, whenever they came in to get them jackets, I would tell them, okay. So I wouldn't have no repercussion. I let them go on the roof, show them the material, and then let them shoot the material. Oh, really? Yeah. Could you imagine Uh selling somebody a coat and then they go out and a bullet go through it? Uh No, I like for them to load what they had when they leave the store. Right. Uh, Because the bulletproof material comes in three levels, level Mm -hmm. one, two, and three. Mm -hmm. So they get a chance to determine, you know, what, what firearms they think they might need to resist. Wow. Wow. Do you know, did you ever get word back that it had actually saved somebody's life? Um, I've never got the opposite back. So you're, were you, were you scared ever working with like the clientele you were working with? Are sharks afraid of sharks? You're asking a Vic here, so I don't know. <laughs> no, no. You know? I don't know what sharks feel. No, yeah, you you yeah. tell me, are sharks afraid of other sharks? No. If yeah, I was yeah. a shark, I might be afraid of other sharks. Uh, well, you would, no, well, you shouldn't be in the water. <laughs> I think we've established that. No. <laughs> so the answer is no, you were not afraid. No. No. How could you not be afraid, though? Like, isn't there, isn't there just like the threat of violence is like part of that whole situation? You accept, though, right? you accept all of that. You accept all that. You accept all that. You live with it every day, you know? Mm -hmm. You live with that every day. So you don't even think about that. You're already prepared for that. I was prepared for that from from a little boy coming up. This is is the world I've seen, Mm -hmm. you know? After the break, Dan comes up against an entirely different threat than the criminals, the law. And he faces off against the future justice of the Supreme Court. That's coming up. Welcome back to Without Fail and my conversation with fashion designer Dapper Dan. Throughout the 80s, Dan's business kept growing. He moved from a simple storefront into a three-story building with his own printing warehouse nearby. But Dan hadn't just opened the store to make money. He'd also seen it as a way to escape the streets. And on that front, things weren't going so well. At the peak of the store, at the peak of the store's success, on a personal level, like, what's your life like? What, where are you living? I hated it. Really? Why? I hated it. Felt trapped. 
I'm open 24 hours a day. If you look back then at my pictures, I look older then than I do now. My grandkids tell me, say, Dad, Papa, you look older then. It's the state of mind that certain types of spaces will put you in, you know? What, what was and the I stress? Didn't, I didn't, the what stress was... is just dealing with people who are not on the same vibratory plane you are, man. Uh-huh. That's tormenting. All my friends were major drug dealers, so I didn't want to have no contact with them, right? Even right. though they was in and out, but socially, I didn't have any contact with them. It sounds sort of lonely. It was lonely as hell, man. It was a, it was a bad place, you know? And it was right at the height the crack epidemic, and I'm seeing people being destroyed right in front of my eyes, you know? Uh-huh. And so, uh, and I saw it strike people so close to me that I could no longer trust, you know? And uh, it was a real, really, really lonely time for me. Eventually, though, Dan would find some customers on a similar vibratory plane. As the 1980s were on, hip-hop was on the rise in New York City. Up-and-coming artists tried to tap into the glamour and grit that they saw on the streets. And Dapper Dan's brash designs seemed tailor-made for this new cultural phenomenon, even if Dapper Dan himself was just waking up to it. I grew up in the rock and roll era and Calypso era, Afro-Latino music era. So I had been familiar with genres of music and how they evolved. Uh So when hip-hop was starting, you know, I I, I saw the birth of it. I didn't pay really close attention, but the young guys that I had working in the store say, Dap. You know what it is? It's Saturday night, man. I can listen to... And he used to tell me about the hip-hop show, and I would listen to it with him. And uh-huh. then the, the artist... A, the hip-hop show on the radio, you mean? You mean uh, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, on okay. the radio. Uh-huh. And um, it only came on once a week and late at night, yeah? Uh-huh. And um, then they start coming in with the gangsters, you know? The the, yeah. the rappers. The hip, the, yeah, the, the rappers yeah. always wanted to be like the gangsters. Uh-huh. So they were they started coming in with the gangsters, and that's when I started familiarizing myself with them. Uh-huh. And so when, I think the first one came in was LL Cool J, Jam Master J, Run DMC, like gangsters was buying them stuff. So now there's a shift, uh-huh. right? So the dark shard, the gangster side of the culture imploded, and then in the process, hip-hop was expanding. Mm -hmm. So now the hip-hop artists are the major ones with the money. So they they done supplanted the gangsters. Dan embraced his new customer base. He enjoyed talking to these young upstart musicians more than he did talking to the street hustlers. His favorite, he says, was Biz Marquis. Dan's clothing designs made it onto the covers of iconic records, like Paid in Full by Eric B. and Rakim. It felt like Dan's dream of putting distance between himself and the streets was finally in reach. But then something happened that threw it all into jeopardy. It started one night in 1988 when a very famous boxer and a regular Dapper Dan customer came in to pick up a custom jacket. So Mike Tyson um, comes to the store all the time. Now, Mike Tyson is the first super athlete of the hip-hop era. Uh-huh. You know? Right. So, and he comes from Brownsville. Brownsville, neighborhood in Brooklyn, right? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So he has the gangster element, uh, the hip-hop element. Right. You know, and he's the super guy, superstar. Uh-huh. Right? So he comes to the store, and cool guy, me and him tight, friends to this day. So Mike Tyson, he wants to get a jacket made, you know, from uh-huh. a popular rap song, Don't Believe the Hype. Uh-huh. And um, so I'm making him up that, because there's a lot of publicity going on, bad publicity. So he said, Dap, I want you to make me up this jacket, man. Don't believe the hype. Uh-huh. So I make him up this jacket. He tells me he's coming like 2.30 in the morning, but lo and behold, he comes at 3.30, and one of his arch, to this day, enemy comes in the store. Uh-huh. Mitch Blood Green. 
And uh, Mr. Plum, you say, Mike, you know you ain't beat me that night, man. Uh-huh. Mike say, come on, man. You know, this is another my- boxer. They've had a fight and that the Mike Tyson won. So the boxer, yeah. this boxer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Mike says, shake my hand, man, shake my hand. So he shake hands. Then Mitch Green just get really belligerent inside the store. And Mike just walks out. Mitch Green follows him outside the store. And he uh, rips Mike Tyson's side view mirror off the car. Not just oh. any car, uh, Rolls Royce. <laughs> and Mike decks him. So, you know, Mike Tyson knocks him out in the street, bloodies his eyes. And the next day is in all the newspapers. Oh, wow. Mike Tyson knocks out Mitch Green in Dapper Dan's Boutique. The night manager of Dapper Dan's Boutique says Mitch Green was looking for trouble. But a number of nagging questions won't go away. Why was the world heavyweight champion shopping in Harlem for a leather jacket, ironically embroidered with the phrase, don't believe the hype, at 4 o'clock in the morning? That was followed by the next Monday, the first Monday after that there, um, Monday Night Football, and you know how they have the aerial crew up there and the helicopter? Uh-huh. And so they're cracking a joke. Oh, yeah, somewhere down there is Dapper Dan's 24-hour boutique where Mitch Green got knocked out by Mike. Now you I got on, all this publicity. You're on you Monday know, Night Football. <laughs> Monday Night Football. You know, that was so sensational. My landlord who owned the building, he called up, he said, how did you do that? How did you arrange for that publicity? I said, man, I ain't arranged for no publicity. He said, man, you, you're so popular now. The people don't even believe that I own the building that you have the store in. <laughs> so this should be a good thing, right? Like, this is what every store owner wants, is, yeah, like, yeah, free yeah. publicity. Yeah, yeah, but for me, it had the, the opposite. It made me the most popular guy in the world, in the streets, and the most infamous in the uh, fashion world. Now I'm on the radar. I was under the radar. Now uh-huh. I'm on the radar. And that's what led to all the publicity that involved... The brands being going weird. I say, who, what the hell is a Dapper Dan? Those brands that were asking, what the hell is a Dapper Dan? We're seeing in the news footage around this time, some of Dan's designs festooned with their own intellectual property. And so, Dan says, companies like Louis Vuitton and Fendi got court orders and started raiding Dan's store. What do they do when they raid? What are they doing? They just, they just spread out and take it and commence to take anything that they see with Labels on it. Take it, just they take it off the rack and then put it in what yeah, they do? Yeah, put it in like their little vans they come with, a little small truck, uh-huh. and, and, you know, they go on a raid. Uh-huh. So, lo and behold now, MCM had been raiding me. Uh-huh. Gucci never raided me. MCM raided me, and Louis Vuitton did, right? Uh-huh. But um, one occasion when Fendi came in, the lead lawyer for Fendi was Sotomayor. Sotomayor, who's uh, one of the justices oh, of the Supreme Court. Sonia Sotomayor was the, was yeah, the counsel yeah. for, for she Fendi? Was, she was the lead lawyer for Fendi when she came in. Very <laughs> okay. honest lady. I got to give this to uh-huh. her. Right? She said something very, you know, as, if it wasn't for them circumstances, I would be, like, really happy. Because, you no, know, she said when she came, I had just finished a, a, a aquascutum-type leather coat. Uh-huh. You know, with a tuxedo, black glamour mink collar, uh-huh. and it was Fendi, and was plonge leather, black on black with, with black Fendi Fs all over it. Uh-huh. And she said, wow, this guy belongs downtown. What do you mean she said this guy belongs downtown? Was, that, what did, was what she you saying that I, the, what the work that I was doing, was she was amazed by it. Uh-huh. 
Yeah, but she couldn't. She didn't take me downtown, but she took everything I had with Fendi over. <laughs> That's amazing. Shout out to Sonia. So the, these these raids are coming. When did the when did you finally make the decision to shut down the store? So it depleted my funds over, over a period of time. The raids, I had to buy new machines because they confiscated all my sewing machines and stuff. So each time after each raid, I had to replenish. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and over a period of time, I took its toll. Mm-hmm. So I, I decided to go underground. Uh-huh. This was probably the most trying time in my life because I lost all my workers, all my machines. All right? Uh-huh. And so, and to start all over, I had to figure out something. First time in my adult life that I, like, laid up in the bed just trying to figure life out for three months. Uh-huh. And, you know, my daughter said, wow, I never saw daddy like this, you know? After the break, how Dan finally gets out of bed and eventually gets into bed with the people who put him out of business. That's coming up. Welcome back to Without Fail and my conversation with Dapper Dan. After spending three months in bed... Dan got back to work. He started out almost literally where he first began, back on the street hustling. This time, he was selling knockoff Chanel t-shirts on the sidewalk. And he says his first day out, he didn't sell one shirt. It was a huge blow to his ego, going from a three-story building, fancy cars out front, a team of tailors, to hawking t-shirts off a folding table. Gradually, though, he started getting back on his feet, selling more clothes, and eventually set up a sort of underground design and consulting business that ended up doing quite well. He did that for the next two decades. But while he was out of the spotlight personally, his legend was growing. The hip-hop artists that had frequented Dan's store had moved further into the mainstream, starring in movies, TV commercials, and they brought along their Dapper Dan styles and Dapper Dan memories. And a funny thing started to happen. A whole new crop of hip-hop stars, like Missy Elliott, Fat Joe, and Nas, started paying homage to Dan and their music. DMC blew my brains to bits from leather boots to shell toes to the Stan Smiths to Dapper Dan kicks. Hey yo, you can ask Dapper Dan who was the man back in 88. Every other week trick 30 grand. Uh. I'm talking to your man with my upper hand. The fans call me Dapper Dan. My name is appearing in all these rap records right. because I'm at the uh, birth. I'm part of the birth of the hip hop era. Uh-huh. The birth of a new culture. You know, and exactly. so you hear a rapper talking about the birth of hip hop, and they all want to connect, you know, to that vein, uh-huh. that major artery, right. ground zero. They all they all want to connect to that. You yeah, know? That's you. So guys are hearing about me from original rappers, and this, and the legacy is being passed down, but nobody ever saw my face. Mm-hmm. None of the new the, the millennials they didn't know what I looked like. In fact, millennials they didn't realize till like two years ago they say, "Oh, Dapper Dan is a real person." I just thought that was part of the rhyme. <laughs> you know. You just thought you were a lyric. Yeah, yeah. They, they thought it was just you know, a way to end the rhyme, you right. know? <laughs> if I'm the man, I got to be a Dapper Dan or something uh-huh. like that. <laughs> and you're still underground at this point. Yeah, I'm still on the ground. Okay. You know, and so all of this is happening. I'm saying, damn, what's going on here? It's a new world. And fast forward, here we are now in 217, 216, there's social media. And then Gucci makes this thing and say, hold so, up. So here we are in 217. Gucci comes out. What do they come out with? They Gucci. came out with a, a jacket that's the exact replica of what I made for a famous Olympian, Diane Dixon. And she, and she sees it and people see it and say, hold on. Uh-uh, uh-uh. So she, she posts something. On Instagram and Twitter, and here, here it is. We just like tell me, tell me what you see there. What is yeah, this? Yeah, and, and so the same jacket. Here's the uh, Diane Dixon I made for her, 
That is um, Louis Vuitton, super blue sawn sleeves, right? And with mahogany mink, and they come out with it in Gucci version, with mahogany mink and blue sawn sleeves with the Gucci print. And Diane Dixon tweets and posts this on Instagram, and she's got a picture of her yes. in the 80s, and she's got a picture of the model yes. today, yes. side by side, yes. and you see the jackets look identical. So now I never knew anything about this this new powerful voice called Black Twitter. Black Twitter went viral, and it's like the heavens opened up. You know, it's like here there's 20 years of cloudy weather, and all of a sudden there's this break in the sky. You know what I mean? You get this glorious light coming out of heaven, shines right down into this new medium called social media. <laughs> <laughs> so, how did this reach you? Who, who, who would your family tell you about this, or did you? How did you? How did you? No, everybody was talking about. Everybody was talking about. Everybody was talking about. You know. Uh-huh. Next thing I know, we getting calls from everywhere. We getting calls from, you know, stylists and artists, and everybody is saying Gucci wants to get in touch with Gucci. You know, so my son said you should talk to him. They want to do something. I said, oh, man, I don't believe this. I don't believe none of this. You know, I had this terrible distrust for this, you know, fashion structure. He said, uh, but, Dad, they want, to do, they want to do something with you. I said, okay, if they want to do something with you, I said, I got a brownstone in Harlem. I said, tell them to come to my brownstone in Harlem. And they came. And they say, when we did that jacket that was your creation, we did that to pay homage to you. And I take that for their word. Mm-hmm. We just didn't say it. Mm-hmm. Right? But we're here today to say everybody paid you homage, but nobody paid you. We're here to change all that. I said, we're the contract. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I don't want no collaboration. I want a partnership. And they gave me a partnership. And they said, in addition to that, We're going to give you the ability to do what you've always done in Harlem. We're going to open up an atelier (laughs) in Harlem Uh where you can do what you, be creative, but you just use Gucci fabrication. In addition to that, we're going to have a partnership of a collection that's going to go into all the Gucci stores around the world, and you get a percentage of that. Mm -hmm. There's this, there's like, you know, there's a long history now of like white controlled corporations coming in and sort of co-opting people of color um but then there's also this idea that like you're taking Gucci at the word that they are paying homage to to you and the designs and there it is a partnership but like there is this like line right like was that something that you wrestle with the fear that like that I don't know I might be part of like some sort of PR stunt on their end, or this is this this isn't sincere necessarily. No, on their well, part. well, if, if anyone who would who who would harness that kind of a feeling don't understand the nature of economics, you know, it's like I have a choice, and that choice is I can start by building from the bottom and think that I can profit off my culture and compete against a multinational corporation. That's not going to happen, you know. And if I attempted to do that. That would be like taking us back 50 years because that would be equivalent to what I call Jim Crow economics. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. because I'm not in the rooms. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's where I am right now. And right. this is what I'm trying to explain to everybody else. Yeah, yeah. So now, do you boycott and walk away? Now, this is the op- this is the options you have. You could boycott and walk away and get zero. How rational is that? As opposed to being a part and being in these spaces mm-hmm. with these dark faces. And being able to make choices and seeing how the, the dynamics of multinational corporations function. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, partnership with Gucci. What does that feel like now? Um, this is what I've been saying for like the last two years. I've been telling my friends, don't get too close to me because if you pinch me and I wake up, I'm going to kill you. That's what it feels like. It feels like a dream. You know, it's a rainbow. And what is what's what's the rainbow about? Is it just the, is it the money? Is it the fact that you're not underground anymore? Is it the fact of the recognition? What is the the, thing? Ra- the rainbow is recognition, and what it not just personal recognition, but the difference that it makes to the community from which it sprang, the fountain from which this golden water came out of. That's that's the biggest part of this. Mm-hmm. This is a luxury brand. This is global. Mm-hmm. This this presence is felt global. I get Netherlands, Australia, China. All these people are conscious of the fact there's a black guy from Harlem that has done this. Mm-hmm. And and like I have what we call pen pals in my day. I don't know what y'all call them today, <laughs> followers in their day. But I have followers in the shanty towns of South Africa, the favelas of Brazil. Do you know how that feels to touch people who have a life similar to what I have come out of? You know, I grew up swimming in the Harlem River, sewage floating by my face, you know, laughing at it. You could throw a stone from my house and then land in the Harlem River. I am the Harlem River. And I always consider myself as being like the Harlem River, always there, but always moving. One of the things that we didn't touch on, which I think to me is like one of the biggest um, transformations that you've gone through that we never even talked about. When you're running dice and when you're on the streets and you were like running those games, it was all about business, it was all about the numbers. As soon as you open the store... I mean, you have to you have to manage the store, right? You have to balance the books, all that sort of stuff. But really, what you are you have you have transformed yourself into like in, into an artist, right? Like you are making these designs, and I wonder if when you described Gucci coming back and like the way it felt like light was opening up, I wonder if it felt like your one way of looking at your life is like it was a continual process of like sharing your gift with the world, and this felt like the culmination of that. That now. You can share it, and the world is welcoming it. No, no, absolutely not. Okay, that's the that's my big theory. That's the next to the last step. Okay, you know, you white guys will not get this. Do you understand? Uh-huh. And, and let me tell you what that is. Right, um, life has been an abundance for you. You have no reason to question nothing, but we are constantly questioning who we are. So when I started out, right, I started out in a storefront church. All I had. And all my parents could give me was the Holy Ghost. Do you know what that is? You uh-huh. saw the Blues Brothers when the yeah. Holy Ghost hit them and they jumped up and flipped in the air. Do you understand what that is? You have to understand what that is to understand uh, uh, what it means to be black. 
The Holy Ghost is the purity of what it means to be black. We didn't have anything else. And know what the saying was? That's all right. We got holes in our shoes, but all God's children in heaven got shoes, you know? So we was locked into wait till you die before you get to heaven and get these things. And that sustained us. Do you understand what I'm saying? I know so much about the darkness. You know what I'm saying? You know, and I had all these visions like Jesus in the cave. You know what I'm saying? All these symbolisms that I'm studying, I'm reading, I'm saying you have to go into that cocoon and emerge from that cocoon and get to a point where you can have a shine that light. And so where am I today? I'm at I'm in the prosperity phase of this. I haven't even begun to expound on what this means spiritually. That's where I'm heading. This is the story I want to tell. This ain't a Gucci story. This ain't a fashion story. Look at this black guy who ain't supposed to be nothing, swimming the river with the shit in it, where we shit. That's where I was in the river where we shit. You understand what I'm saying? That's to me, that's the cave. You know, and when you come out of that, you emerge from that there, you emerge going with your march towards glory. And if you don't tell that glory story, you don't have a story, you know? So mm-hmm. that's where I'm at. Deborah Dan recently created a new program called The Changemakers, which helps black fashion professionals grow their careers inside Gucci. He's also written a new book, a memoir, called Dapper Dan, Made in Harlem. We created a playlist of some of the songs that name-dropped Dapper Dan from artists like LL Cool J, Missy Elliott, Pusha T. You can find it exclusively on Spotify at withoutfail.show slash dapper. That's withoutfail.show slash dapper. Without Fail is hosted by me and produced by Molly Messick, Rob Zipko, and Tiba El Arbani. It is edited by me and Devin Taylor. Music and mixing by Bobby Lord. If you like Without Fail, follow us. You can get every episode for free through Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Listening.